Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Path, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tengata Finawa of Tifanganui Atara, where I am recording today. So, we are embarking on our second season, which is super exciting. And we're reading Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which is also super exciting. So um, maybe we should actually talk about what this book is about. Yeah. (laughs) Since you've read it more recently than me, like 10 years ago is the last time I read it. Would you please tell us what this book is about? So I've probably read it like three years ago the last time. I've read it a couple of times. It's one of my favorite books, probably just because of a sentence that appears on like the second page of the book. So that's quite Mm. extreme. But um, I thought I'd start just by reading the blurb and that'll give people a sense of what it's actually about so it goes under the streets of london there's a place most people could never even dream of a city of monsters and saints murderers and angels knights in armor and pale girls in black velvet this is the city of the people who have fallen between the cracks richard mayhew a young businessman is going to find out more than enough about this other london A single act of kindness catapults him out of his workday existence and into a world that is at once eerily familiar and utterly bizarre. And a strange destiny awaits him down there, beneath his native city, Neverwhere. Dun-da-da! Oh my gosh. And we're both reading the author's preferred text from, like, 2012 or something? Yeah. Um, so, I think... You know, if we think about this book, it's really a coming of age tale, but it's also, I think, about the duality of the self, like finding other versions of yourself and also Mm. ultimately about being invisible and being kind of marginalized, right? Yeah, that's what I think of when I think of this book. It's about marginalized people and giving them a story and and their story and their voice. Yeah, Um, I've always enjoyed like the humor of it and the intricacies of the story and the setting, I think. You know, I love how vividly it recalls London while also making it entirely new in a way. So, mm. yeah, it really takes me back. London is, yeah, I lived in London for a couple of years and it just really takes me back to that time and really rekindles my love. So, yeah, that's what I love about it. <laughs> I was, I spent six hours in London, so I have very little frame of reference. But, yeah, I, I, I think I love the idea of London and especially because it's a really old city. Mm-hmm. And because it has so many nooks, crannies, layers, you know, where I'm from in the Pacific Northwest, we have Seattle and Seattle has a, like a burned down city underneath Mm. it. Um, And you can go on like ghost tours and stuff. And I've always wanted to do that because I love the idea that there's this entire layer of history and a whole other world that you just don't know about. That's the cool thing about, I think, books like this as well, is that it's so easy to believe in the magic because of the history. Mm. You know, you're like, yeah, of course there's a secret London because, you know, even sometimes I would discover new alleyways that led somewhere that I didn't realize it led to because I never go down there. And you've got such old buildings next to such new buildings and hidden secret tube stations that are buried underground and all sorts of nonsense going on (laughs) i love those yeah like um in in sydney we have vineyard platforms one and two don't exist but they're there Mm. they don't exist you can't get to them but they are underground they were built so bizarre hey i love that i want to see all of the old train stations that have been forgotten there's a tour in london i believe they opened some of them up and you can go look at the the ones that aren't operational that would be amazing Maybe someday, when we can travel again. (laughs) Yes, in 2030. (laughs) Um, We did a different thing with our themes. So instead of doing two themes per section, we're doing 
one overarching theme, um, which is compassion. Um, and then we just chose a bunch of themes from our themes list, which is the same as the Harry Potter sacred text themes list. And we will link that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really excited about compassion. I love that you picked it and I started finding bits of it right away. Yeah, I think it's such a good theme and I think it, it fits well with this book. But also I, the reason I feel like I was drawn to it is because I think that's something we can all benefit from. You know, we can all benefit mm. with being more compassionate and also just being not just with others, but with ourselves and being more aware of it, I think. Like, yeah, yeah. it's hard out there. Everybody's trying their best. Yeah. And I, I keep I try to be more mindful of that these days, you know, like I was at the grocery shop this morning and I was not I was in a, a bit grumpy and I didn't really want to talk to everyone. But then the cashier was talking to me and I really made an effort because I'm like, I don't know what his day's like. I don't know what he's yeah. going through or what he's been up to. So he doesn't need to like stare at my grumpy face for these three minutes that we're interacting. But, you know, that's nice of you. Thank you. As a person who worked way more retail than any other kind of job, I thank you. <laughs> an attempt was made. Well, this week we're going to read the prologue and chapters one and two through the theme of society, which is awesome. Um, Jen, would you like to tell a story that relates to our theme? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about society and like how we think of it as a bunch of people living together in a community and they've got set customs and rules and like a set level mm. of behavior that we all share. And that reminded me of George Costanza and Seinfeld. Like, I don't know if you've watched a lot of Seinfeld, but there's that episode where they're in the Chinese restaurant and George is waiting to use the phone and he, some woman cuts in line in front of him and he gets really upset because he's George and he just like walks away from him like really loudly to the whole waiting room, just announces, you know, we're living in a society. We're supposed to be <laughs> acting in a civilized way. And it's just like one of those cornerstone things in the, in the show. And it got me thinking about moments when I felt like that, where I was like, you know, we live in a society. And I just, <laughs> yes. yes, I just had this vivid memory of when I was like 19. Um, so I was really into the band, My Chemical Romance. And my friend, two of my friends and I, we went, inverted commas, on tour with the band. And like, we basically just went to all their Australian shows. So back to back shows. Actually, I must have been 21. Because I think I just Yeah, I don't know, sometime between 19 and 21. In your feckless youth. Yeah, exactly. When that seemed like a reasonable thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we flew to Brisbane, went to the show there, flew to back to Sydney. I think they did two shows in Sydney. And then we went to Melbourne, and they did a show there. So it was really intense, really like quick back to back and um, when we were at the Sydney show we had queued all day like this is back before I realized that you do not have to line up all day pro tip kids you do not have to line up all day you can just get there and push your way to the front <laughs> so I spent all day I think we got there at like 5 a.m there were already people there queuing outside what was the Sydney entertainment center so all day sitting outside being you know cold and hungry and surrounded by fellow emos who may or may not be very annoying, even back then, to me. But that's fine. And then we get to the, you know, into the venue, and we get to the front of the stage, and we're all packed in, and everyone's very excited. But of course now, mm. you know, we've been awake since 5am. Now we're waiting. We're standing through an opening act that I can't even remember who it was. You can't sit down because you're all packed in so tightly. And it was incredibly hot. Like, this was, you know... December in Sydney I think so it was really oh, quite warm 
and there was no water. So normally at a gig, you know, there's usually security up the front and people handing out water to you while you're in the front. They didn't have any. And I was like to the security guards, well, look, a girl's about to faint here. Can we get some water? No, you can't get water. You have to go and get it. Okay, so we've just queued all day to get to the front of the show and now you want me to extricate myself from this crush to go and get water. Oh my gosh. I got really angry and really upset because I hate seeing people in situations like that where it's a really easy fix and people just won't help. Like, it makes me really upset. So I stormed off, ran out, and I think I got like... 20 trays of water and I was just ferrying them back and forth from the bar into the pit like being like water's coming and everyone was like I was like a hero for a moment you know I was the hero of the mosh pit and I just like was one of those moments where I'm like we have a set rules of behavior we're supposed to look out for each other why would you not help us and then later in the when the actual gig started they did bring out water I don't know if that was always the plan or whether they acted because I stormed off made them ashamed yeah yeah (laughs) I don't know. But then like a week later, a girl saw me on the train platform when I was catching the train back from uni to home. And she was like, oh, were you the girl at MCR who gave us all the water? And I was like, yeah, that was me. And she's like, oh, thank you so much. You're my hero. And I was like, oh, that's great. Such a simple thing. But yeah, it just reminded me of society and how we need to look out for each other, I guess. That's true. We do. And that's the whole point of society. Like it's made for us. It's made of us and it's made to benefit us. Hmm. We don't do these things for no reason. We're a, we're people who need a tribe, a group, a sense of belonging and community. And there are certain, not obligations, but just things that you're meant to do as part of that. I love that. Thank you for being the water person. Thank you for saving all the people in the mosh pit from themselves. It seemed very dramatic at the time, but when, like retrospectively, they probably would have been fine. But at the time, it felt like life or death. <laughs> That said, it can be really hot in gigs in Sydney in the summer. So I think you were well within the right to be angry and to go and get something and to do something about it. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so instead of our best three, we're going to do something called a moment of wonder or a moment of magic where we just find one little thing. It could be anything that just, I don't know, made the world seem a little bit better or gave us a moment of appreciation or pause. And I think I'll go first. Mm-hmm. This week, uh, my youngest, my, my youngest, my son's friend from school came to visit, and it's been a really long holiday in a lot of ways. I've loved it. I love having my kids home. I think it's great. But they're at the point where they're ready to go back to school, and they're tired of being home with me, and I'm, I get it. I really do. But, you know, so we had this play date, and his friend came over, and because we haven't seen them in eight weeks... It was just incredible how much his friend has grown and changed over the summer. Wow. When you do get these like long breaks of time, sometimes you can see like how much a kid has developed. So I said, you know, I said to this little, this little boy's mom, I said, I can't believe how much his language is coming on and he's just grown so much. And she was just so happy. She said, thank you so much for noticing because I see him every day. So I don't get that perspective. And I thought that's really true. Like, Almost every time anyone has seen my kids, they go, wow, they're so big and they're so different. And it's, I think sometimes it's nice to have that person telling you that, but it's also nice to be the person who sees it and notes it. So oh, that's lovely. Yeah. He still doesn't like band-aids though. So that was a whole kerfuffle. He got a little scrape and would not let me put a band-aid on it. Oh dear. I know. Sorry, kid. So unlike your one who loves a band-aid. <laughs> yeah. My house is covered in band-aids. <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely story. I think that is like the magic of the everyday that we don't really appreciate all that often. So what about you? Did you have any moments this week? I did have a moment. It was like last Friday, so I don't know if that really counts as this week, but I'm going to take it anyway. It totally counts. Um, so I took the day off 
work because it was going to be sunny and that is the kind of extreme behavior that we do in Wellington because we so rarely get a nice 24 degree day and um, I spent the afternoon at the beach like various beaches along the coast and so I spent two hours at one two hours at another and then ended the day getting ice cream and just like as I was driving home from this amazing day I just the sun was setting and the sky was this like candy floss pink color and I just felt Mm. so good because I'd spent the whole day in the sun reading a book and eating ice cream and it just felt amazing and I was like you know, we go on holiday to get these feelings, but you can make these moments for yourself. Like, I could have this moment every day, theoretically. Yeah. And it was just so nice to recognize that this could be your life. Like, this makes you feel happy and this could be this could be what you do. So that was my little moment yeah. of magic. It's nice when the best things are just right to hand and you didn't realize or think that they were so close, but they're right there. Or even how, like, how much they mean to you. I think that was the thing that struck me. I was like, wow, Mm. I'm so happy in this moment. And it's just like these really simple things that are making me happy. Yeah, the wanting what you have. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. Right, so will you do our chapter summaries for us? I would love to prologue richard mayhew is having a farewell party as he is moving from small town scotland to london for work he meets an elderly woman who reads his palm and warns him to watch out for doors he gives her his umbrella chapter one three years later richard is working in london and engaged to strong-willed jessica a young woman is being hunted by three men in the dark she kills one of them and has a narrow escape richard and jessica are on their way to dinner with jessica's important boss mr stockton when richard notices a seriously injured young woman collapsed on the pavement richard decides to help her much to jessica's dismay jessica ends their engagement chapter two richard has a strange dream two men mr croup and mr vandemar knock on his door looking for the injured woman richard has a bad feeling about them and lies about seeing her richard learns her name is dor but she won't answer his questions she asks richard to find the marquis de carabas who can help her get away safely so a lot actually happened in these chapters there was quite a lot going on yeah yeah i didn't realize just quite how much but it hooked me which is nice i really wanted to keep reading yeah to stop myself from keeping going yeah i think reading two chapters a week is really going to be a challenge for our close reading like it's gonna be we're gonna have to rein it in (laughs) yeah i really want to like just tear through it but i don't know it's good to spend the time on it yeah and good to have the overarching theme of compassion and then also the small things i think that's going to really deepen our reading shall we start with society the theme of society it's a very old concept not quite as old as compassion is but um just in terms of what the oed says anyway Mm -hmm. but it basically just means living together in a community Mm -hmm. yeah like that's all it is society is community it's being part of something larger than yourself a fellowship yeah i think the original root of it might have been like companionship right like companionship with Mm. others which is such an interesting thing because my mind automatically goes to like high society and that sort of thing so yeah 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 it's not quite the court of the king and queen is it (laughs) no it's um because you you were presented with two different well even three different very very different facets of society in in the story right Mm -hmm. like you have Richard's existence in his hometown which is like laddish and you know there's the the only snapshot we really get of him is this farewell where everyone's drinking and having a great time and he's a bit miserable because he's trying to decide whether or not he's sick and he has an interaction with a stranger and then you get his sort of workday existence and Jessica's society which is 
much more genteel and aspirational, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Like, I'm really terrible at what British class systems are, but this seems like the upper middle class type thing. Yeah, I'd say that, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm from a blue collar, lower middle class background myself, so like, I don't, I don't really get it. People who have cars that work was like, they were wealthy, in my opinion, <laughs> when I was a kid, you know? Like, your car's never in the shop. What, are you made of money? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I don't I don't understand the nuances of English class at all. Um, and then we have Dor and Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar and London Below, which is its own society mm. and its own specific class systems and rules and mores and values, which I found really fascinating. So we get these different segments that kind of interact and overlap, but not really. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, we meet Dor, she is injured on the street and Jessica is like stepping over her basically and being like, don't touch mm. this, you know, injured person. And yet, you know, when the um, Marquis turns up, he like kneels in front of her and you, you know, we find out later that she's the lady door and therefore she's in, in her class system. She's actually quite high up. Yeah. I really have forgotten everything about this. The question I have for you, is it Marquis or Marquis? I've never known. Um, I think I would say it like Marquis. I will take note of when I hear it on the audiobook. Next time we record, I'll write down how it's said and say it. Okay. But I've always read it as Marquis because, like, it seems French, so yeah. I want to say it in a really bad French way. Apologies to all the French speakers out there. That's how I've always sent it as well. Like, I've always sent it like that. And then there was a pub on the corner near my work in England that was called The Marquis, and everyone called it The Marquis. I'm like, is that how you pronounce that word? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I always thought it would be Marquis. Like, yeah, Mm. because that makes sense to my brain. Yeah, and surely it's like a French honorific as well, right? Like, that's where it would have originated. So it's going to be our French word. I don't care. (laughs) We will look it up and we'll get back to you, dear listeners. Um, Yeah, I thought that Jessica was especially interesting because she's very conscious of what she's doing who she is and how she wants to be yeah um and she knows all the rules and richard doesn't seem to yeah she definitely struck me as like a social climber right she knows where she's going she's ambitious Mm. and richard even says at one point you know when they make her prime minister which he's sure they will so she has very clear ideas she feels confident in her knowledge of the system to get there yeah. And she wants the best restaurant and she wants Richard to confirm the re- best restaurant. And then she's like really outraged that he has to like offer them extra money in order to get a table. And she's like, oh, yeah. they'll seat us by the kitchen or the door. And she's like, did you tell them it was for Mr. Stockton? I'm like, okay, but I don't think everyone cares about this guy as much as you do. He seems important in the story. I just feel like um, she wants Richard to be something that he's not. And she wants him to be agreeable but like he is agreeable but he doesn't respond to her direction the way that she wants which is like the fundamental problem between them yeah and he's quite content to just let her steer and like just follow direction but he has no motivation to lead that himself but I feel like he also tried to tell her like you know when they meet in the um gallery and he says he's never been able to convince her that he's not the kind of guy who goes to galleries so she's decided this is the kind of guy you're gonna be because I found you in one so you can't convince me otherwise even though he's straight up telling her I'm not that person yeah there was a really good quote about how she decided he would make a a good matrimonial accessory yeah not a husband not a life partner like when I met my partner I was like oh no this is the person I want to do life with yeah yeah not this is this is the one I'm going to marry because he's shapeable, so it seemed really strange that she chose Richard based on the fact that he was tractable, maybe, yeah, maybe because she could kind of steamroll him, yeah, shape him in the image she wanted mm. it was a it was very shocking to me, and I sometimes when I read texts 
texts like this and I think, oh, it was written in a different time because I think the series was developed in the 90s. Yeah, 96 or something, yeah. Definitely this trope of, like, the ambitious career woman who is... Like, if you watch any of the, well, you know, what, what are, who's the guy who did, like, Four Weddings and a Funeral? There's always at least one of these women in these, like, this is a very British 90s career woman thing, mm-hmm. right? Am I, mm-hmm. am I wrong? Am no, I reading not, that correctly? Yeah, I yeah. feel like that's a well-worn trope. So she's, she seems right for the time, but looking at it now, I'm like, what is her story? What has made her this way? I want to know more about her. Yeah, what's her motivation? What drives yeah, her? And where... Where's everybody's parents? I feel like I everybody I know that's our age talks to their parents and things about their parents. Like, not all the time, but, like, somewhat. Mm. Nobody has parents. Maybe that's a modern thing as well because we've got so much better access to technology and stuff. Maybe back in the 90s you would just be like, well, I don't know, collect, call them once a month or something. We did get the mention of Richard's mother giving him a walnut cake and a flask of tea. That's not compassion. And um, Dora's mother warning her that she was in danger. Mm. But the only thing we get of Jessica's parents is that duvets are extravagant. So, which isn't. <laughs> does she not have a duvet? Does she just have a. Like, what does she have on her just bed? A is sheet. It just a sheet. Yeah, I think so. That's it. And that's an interesting thing as well, I think, about some high society where it's like, you know, I think especially British, like, again, I'm not that well versed in British high society, but I feel like there's a really. Yeah, we're, we're from the colonies, yeah, so what do we we're know? We're just right? assuming based on stereotypes, as you do. <laughs> but I think there is this thing in like high class British society where you never want to appear like you're, you know, too decadent or, you know, like think about your Downton Abbeys, you know, they're not ostentatious. You're kind of reining it in a little bit. That is an interesting perspective because I would think looking at like some of those houses, I would be like, oh, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, that is ridiculous, but that is their entitlement, right? Like, I think even if if you think of the crown and there's this whole bit where they go to the country, right? And that's so down to earth and Mm. they're wearing, you know, Wellington boots and they're out in the mud and all this stuff. It's real homely. Like, that's what I kind of think of as like real upper class people. They're not about being fancy all the time. They're weirdly weirdly yeah. country i don't know yeah but they still have servants and they still oh, have yeah. like things at a lot of, of times of course and, yeah. let's not let's not go <laughs> mad now <laughs> i couldn't imagine having staff i would just want to familyize them they would just become the family like i couldn't do it i'd be too awkward i'd be like please sit down i'll make you a cup of tea the idea of paying people to do things for you is very contrary to how i was raised and very contrary to like americanness in general Yeah, I was just thinking that because actually when you think about that sort of perception of high society, it's kind of the great Gatsby thing, you know, where you've got the new money Gatsby Mm. being ostentatious and loud and just flashing his money. And you've kind of got the old money who's more reserved and like minding their business. Don't don't need to show it off because they know who they are and they know where they're Mm. at. Yeah, I think that maybe Jessica falls into the old money, but is trying to get somehow like she's very ambitious so she's doing some of the like quote new money type things yeah. I don't know I found her really perplexing she was the character I got really stuck on she's obviously I think I got the feeling that she cared very much about appearances she was always putting on a front and yes. the line that struck me was on page 15 where it says the largest amount of money Richard had ever spent on anything had been spent on Jessica's engagement ring mm. I'm like they'd been together what 18 months and he shelled out on this engagement ring but you just know that Jessica would not have given him a choice in that Well, exactly. She told him a year in the day after they met that it was time to start ring shopping. She's the woman with the plan. Yeah, she's got a binder. (laughs) I was going to say, I found a lot of the intersection of society and compassion were really Mm. strong for me. Like, that was where I really got interested was seeing where they lined up. Yeah, I agree. I saw compassion a lot through this and it did tie into society. So even in the first 
on the second page, you know, you've got this old woman seeing Richard on the curb and she comes over to him and she's like, you know, she thinks he, she she thinks he's homeless and Richard says, I'm not homeless, explained Richard, embarrassed. And then a couple of lines later, he's telling her he's moving to London and he says, I've got a job, he told her proudly. And, you know, that conversation mm. has come about because of the compassion of the woman to check on him. But I thought that yeah, was a, absolutely. an interesting display of society as well, where he's like embarrassed to be thought of as homeless, but very proud to be moving for a job. And I think because he's young too, you are proud when you're about to achieve something or when you've achieved something. You you want to tell people because you want people to have that joy. And he's just left his own party where that quote was so good. It's bordering on a sinister how enthusiastic his going away party was. They were all celebrating his leaving with such enthusiasm. It was bordering on sinister. I love that because really at a going away party, it's about catching up with your mates. It is not about, oh, you're leaving. Goodbye. Yeah. Like, that's like two percent of it but he just could not see past that to understand that it wasn't them being so happy he was leaving but just having a good time because they were all together I, that really struck me as well and it, it made me think of like times when you don't really want to leave or you're not 100 percent sure of your um decision where you're like questioning yourself and then mm. you're like oh i can't believe that everyone's having such a good time because you're in a, in, in a turmoil you know <laughs> Yeah, the thing about Richard that I like is he's very private, so he took himself out of it to mm. feel his feelings. Yeah, and then he's interrupted by this woman who shows him compassion, and then he turns that around by mm. showing her compassion as well, where he's like, I can't let her walk away in the rain, and he gives her his new umbrella that he just got as a going away present. With all the tube station names on mm. it. That is actually my favourite, one of my all-time favourite lines in every any novel ever, and if it wasn't so long and actually didn't make sense outside of context, I'd probably get it tattooed on me, but it's on page four where she says you've got a good heart she told him sometimes that's enough to see you safe wherever you go then she shook her head but mostly it's not i don't know why Mm. that really speaks to me on like a spiritual level i just love that so much because you can be a good person and sometimes you know terrible things might still happen to you and that's not a reason to not be a good person that's what i take from that yeah that's more of a reason to be a good person because terrible things happen to everybody all of the time. Yeah, We can add to it or we can not add to it. And you shouldn't just do good things because you're hoping nothing bad happens to you. <laughs> yeah, this isn't an investment and return thing. This isn't the, if I put good out into the world, good will come back to me. Can I please change these 10 good feelings for some something? Cold yes. hot cash, please. <laughs> yes, I was good to somebody last week, so I would like a raise. <laughs> You don't get that. You just have to do the best you can. And and having a good heart and like always trying to do the right thing. I think that's very characteristic of Richard. He's just not very good at noticing when things need doing. So my feeling was he's very deeply compassionate, but he's just distracted by like the chaos of his disorderly life. Yeah. And he only really gets the chance to act on it when it like he literally stumbles over it. So sitting by himself and the woman approaches him mm-hmm. and he's able to then be compassionate to her by giving her an umbrella or when door appears on the pavement mm-hmm. and is bleeding and hurt and needs somewhere someone safe he is able to just go oh well this needs doing so i'll do it what was the quote um let me just find it on page 32 oh no oh, no it's it's a little bit before on 26 he says richard did not at any point on his walk stop to think it was not something over which he had any volition and this idea of kindness and compassion being an innate quality that's in all of us mm-hmm. and you know this like this idea he also gives money to a homeless man earlier before he runs into door and jessica mm. is like we haven't got the time and it's like who gave to charity and invested ethically and i and then later yeah. when 
they stumble over door, she again says, we're going to be late. Someone else will be along. Someone else will help her. And I find that really, I think that's a conversation we say to ourselves a lot. Like I certainly have this conversation. Like I think of myself as a good person, a compassionate person. You know, I give to charity and I volunteer, but I don't stop and give money to every homeless person I walk past on my way to work, you know, and I do feel bad about that. Like there are moments where I'm like, I cannot believe that we just think this is okay as a society, that there is someone sleeping rough here and I'm just going to walk past them. But also how do I function in society if I didn't do that? Yeah. Fundamentally to get on with our lives, we do have to have a degree of selfishness. Like I could not open myself up to all of the compassion that I naturally want to feel and stay sane. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, Because compassion itself is like it implies action. Like you're not compassionate without wanting to do something or actually doing something to mitigate the Mm -hmm. suffering of others. It is feeling the suffering of others, feeling the distress of others in such a way that you are motivated to change or mitigate it. That's what compassion is. I mean, you can feel empathy, which is the same feelings as someone else, but compassion is actually the doing part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's where society comes into it as well, because, you know, for a society to be flourishing, really, we're only as strong as our weakest member, right? Yeah. If we were all looking out to each other, then we wouldn't have to have these moral conundrums. But I just thought it was interesting because my strong instinct was to judge Jessica. Like, I just thought she was so cold and heartless and like, who gave to charity and invested ethically? But that might just be what Mm. she needs to do in order to, you know, that's not as different as what I would do necessarily. Well, look, I mean, I'm sure that people might call me selfish for not being more switched on. We did have a really interesting, you know, because I live in like deep suburbia mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a pretty comfortable part of the world. Like you don't really see a lot of homelessness here. I like really ever. Um, and I thought, oh, let's do a, a couple of gift bags, you know, and I found, oh, there's a local place. We filled a couple grocery bags and I took it down there when they said they were open and there, there was a queue of people. And I just thought, oh my God, there are hungry people in my suburb and I didn't know. Mm. And it was just like, somebody had thrown cold water on me because I've just been in my own bubble for so long that I had forgotten. Yeah. You know, and we're definitely in danger of doing that. And I think it's good that you sometimes get that like jolt of, oh, this, this, these are people and they need these resources. And like, am I doing enough? Um, And, you know, now that I know that this service is there and I can help out, it's nothing to me. It is nothing to me to just add an extra bag of groceries and then drop it Mm -hmm. in. Right. But it could make all the difference for someone else. But you just have to know about it in order to be able to do it. Yeah, and you're right. It is about taking action as well, because I feel like, you know, we often end up in this kind of performative activism space where someone posts something to Instagram and be like, look at me, I'm being compassionate and I'm being helpful. And it's like, well, you're not actually like, I'm always very (laughs) wary of this. Like, I don't want to get involved in something if I'm not going to give it my all. But then it's also kind of this catch 22 where it's like, is, is, is something not better than nothing? You should be allowed to brag about your actual contributions because that makes people want to do that too. Yeah. One thing that I did notice really worked for me in like terms of practical compassion was setting up automatic payments to mm. things that I really think are valuable, even if it's like $5 a mm-hmm. month. You set up direct debit, you forget about it, and then you get like the calendar every year or a bookmark in the post and you think, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm doing that. And for me, I'm in a position where I'm comfortable mm-hmm. enough I can do that. Um, For Richard, giving a, a pound coin to a homeless person, it's something that he might have to hide from Jessica, but he's going to yeah. do it. Yeah. He didn't even think about it. He just did it. No, he was already fun. like he can't remember to get his keys in his pocket, but he's always got change for people. Yeah. He doesn't feel taken advantage of. He really wants to help and contribute. But even when he's drunk, like in the prologue, he's thinking, how can he best help someone? Mm. Well, that woman doesn't need money because she was trying to give him money, but he has to give her something. Yeah. So he gives her his umbrella, a brand new gift. Yeah. He just gives it away. Doesn't even think about it. 
And I wonder how much of that is also because Richard grew up in like a small town, right? And he's moved from the small town to the big city. And I don't want to get into that stereotype of the, you know, the big bad city. But you do experience life quite differently living in a city compared to living in in the suburbs or in a town. And yeah, absolutely. maybe Jessica is just like jaded by this point. Also, there is a bit of minding your own business going on, right? Like she she has activated the somebody else's problem mm-hmm. field. She feels it very strongly. So her world is very narrow and small. She's just looking for herself and her job and her prospects and Richard. And anything that threatens or comes into that is considered a problem mm-hmm. that needs resolving. Yeah. That was how I got around it. Because I kept thinking like, oh, I really wanted to be, like you said, you wanted to judge her. I also wanted to judge her. I wanted to be angry with her. But if you don't know how to help, mm. if you were never taught how to help, if you were never taught that it is valuable to help, then of course you would try and carry on with the thing that you're supposed yeah. to do. Yeah, absolutely. So in a way, she needs more compassion because she hasn't been given the skills to do the right thing. I also think there might be an element of, because you know, when people will find out later that when you have a lot of contact with London Below, people essentially become invisible. And so Richard immediately sees mm. Dor, but Jessica doesn't seem to see her. And it's you could say that she's like, just, you know, doesn't see people like homeless people or whatever. But I feel like maybe she didn't see her at all until Richard pointed her out. Like she was invisible, like the leaky cauldron in Harry Potter, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bystander syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, even I get really frozen with embarrassment. Mm. Like if I get hurt in public, I just want to disappear. So when other people do it, my immediate response is like, don't look at them. They might feel embarrassed. I feel so strongly that they might be hurt that I actually have to will myself to stop and go, hey, are you okay? I just noticed that you fell over or like for me, acting with compassion is like, is this actually going to make them feel worse because I've drawn attention to it? Yeah. Or is it? gonna make it better because they feel like someone has looked after them yeah i don't know (laughs) it's a tough one i also thought there were some moments of lack of compassion in this section so i think richard not calling jessica jessica but continually calling her jess is a lack of compassion because she has asked him to call her jessica and he doesn't and calling people by what they want to be called is compassionate yeah people should have People should have their own names and be allowed to be called by their names. And I think, you know, he might think that she's just being pretentious because she wants to be Jessica and not Jess, which might be the case. But also she's asked you to call her something, so you should do it. And he doesn't think of her as Jess either. He thinks of her and refers to her in his mind as Jessica. Mm. So you're right that it is. Yeah. And look, I get, I mean, as you know, it is impossible to have anybody call you by your right name when your nickname is different. (laughs) Yes. And look, I'm a Jennifer who's a Jen. And you're a Jeanette who's a Jen. But the amount of times that I've said Jen and gotten Jean. Oh my God. Jen? I don't understand. Is it our accents? How hard is it? Why is it? Like every time they're like, because here when you, often when you go to a restaurant, people are like, we need a name for the table. And I, I dread it because I'm like, Jen. And they're like, Jane. And then we go to pay and people are like, oh, we want Jen's table. They're like, we don't have that table. I'm like, okay, try. Jen, Jane, Jess, Jet. Like, what do you want from that? Oh, shit. I don't understand. It's oh. three or four letters, people. Exactly. It's very, for, To me, it's Jen. Like, I don't know why Australians and Kiwis apparently also can't understand the eh versus the ah or the a, but they, that just doesn't parse. So um, I'm Jenny everywhere because that is, least, oh, is at least most of my name. Smart. I might have to do yeah. that. You know what I do? I'll say Jen as in short for Jennifer, which is not my name. <laughs> Yeah. I can't. I can't cope. <laughs> I know. From what I know of slang and the British Australian Kiwi propensity to shorten every name possible in the most annoying way possible, 
just as a nice compromise, okay? Someone tried Jezza on me when I moved here. I nipped that right in the bud. Do not put any Zeds in there, my friend. Does not belong. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was never Jen until I moved to Australia. I've always gone by my full name. Really? Yeah. Oh. The reason I went to Jen is because I did not like the way my full name sounded in an Australian accent. I did wow. not like it. Like, it really grated on me. So I had to shorten it. So, uh, yeah, I tried Jean, I tried Jenny, and then I just sort of became Jen. And then sometimes I'm like, you should just go back to your full name. You don't live in Australia anymore. But now it's too hard. <laughs> sometimes I'll introduce myself as Jennifer, and then I'm like, someone will say it. And I'm like, am I in trouble? Is yeah. That, that's what that means. My full name means I'm in trouble. Um, There was another moment of lack of compassion that I saw, and that was Richard's colleague's bad-mouthing Jessica. Yeah, not cool. Because, yeah, they're like, you know, I don't know why you're with her. She's terrifying. How is the creature from the Black Lagoon? I'm like, you don't say this to someone. That's his partner. Whether you don't, like, I don't get it at all. Yeah. I keep wondering, is this again, like, because we're reading this book in 2021 and we're millennials um, (laughs) and we have this different framework where, like, you just wouldn't say that. Like, I've had some friends who are very terrible partners and you just kind of grin and bear it right you like you look out for them you check in on them but yeah and Seinfeld also taught me that you don't say anything bad when they break up for the first couple of weeks just see if it takes before you say anything bad yeah Mm, I've never been able to follow that rule as soon as they're out of the picture I'm like and they were not (laughs) even close to deserving of you you're amazing you're the best like and then they get back together and I'm like I still think you're amazing. You're the best. They don't deserve you. Like, I'll respect your decision. My, my view never really changed. But I will not agree with it. You can love who you love, but like, just so you know, yeah. no one's good enough for you. Yeah, I just thought it was not a nice thing to do. Wasn't compassionate towards Richard, really, because that's his life, you know? Yeah, and making him having making him have to defend his decisions is not cool. Yeah, and he did the classic, oh, she's really nice when you get to know her. She's very cheerful. She's... Aside from the fact that she ends their engagement because he stopped to help someone, which feels very drastic and also really out of character. Like, how much does she really love him? Well, that's what I thought as well. I'm like, does she really love him or is he just a way to, like, bolster her image? So she needs him to keep up appearances in front of her boss who she's trying to impress. And by Mm -hmm. him not turning up, she's losing face and therefore he's no good to her. But that didn't feel... I don't know, like all of the comments or all of the in-text evidence of their relationship where they are trying to convince each other that they love each other. It didn't feel like that was ever teetering towards some sort of huge blow up. This sort of breakup feels like the culmination of a lot of little Mm. things, not a moment of frustration. This should have just been a fight. Yeah. I mean, there were moments where she says things to him where I'm like, you know, she calls him and she says, you really could get lost in your own back garden. And I thought, there's lots of like little sniping things she says to him that's like judgment, which could mm. be funny if it's done in like a, yeah, it's humor, but it felt more biting. Yeah. So if she's constantly reinforcing that, you know, he can't find his way out of a paper bag or he's not organized and all these things, mm. then is it really that surprising that he doesn't try? Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, that moment where, you know, he's saying that in the darkness, she would hold him very tightly. Um, she would whisper to him how much she loved him and he would tell her he loved her and always wanted to be with her. And they both believed it to be true. To me, that read like they were lying to themselves. Yes, I got that feeling. Yeah, they wanted it to be true. So they just... They believed it. But what's that saying? Fake it till you make it? Maybe that's what they were trying to do with this relationship. She saw him, sized him up, realized he had a lot of potential, could be who she wanted, set to work on it. Didn't account for him having his own personality. (laughs) His own, yeah. Backbone. 
and a deeper well of compassion than she I, because she's not she's not cold she's just dispassionate she's just disconnected like the line where it's on page 25 for us jessica looked back at the girl on the pavement priorities richard had no priorities richard we're going to be late someone else will be along someone else mm. will help her she's looking at this through this lens of what she needs first and foremost she's disconnected from mm. a society that she doesn't belong to and doesn't see the value in in reaching out whereas richard it's not invisible yeah. to him as you said so he does see door and he does want to help her because she's hurt and she needs help and also like on that just before that sentence she, she says she's hurt and that really struck me the emphasis like he just he mm -hmm. cannot even believe that she is not engaging like he's like there's a person here who's hurt and maybe that's also why she yeah. breaks up with him because she's like she couldn't maybe there was something in his eyes the loss of respect for her that she couldn't tolerate so she was like nah you're yeah. out she's in control now and by him doing this he is making her feel less than yeah and she's you're right that her tone has always been a bit like reproachful she's almost like a teacher scolding mm. a child right i mean she's very cheerful because she has the, everything well in hand until she's not and then when it all blows up she's just furious that her plans have mm. gone awry mm. she's looking at this like my priority is this and we need to go and do this and we're already running late and we're going to be later and it looks really bad and so what someone else will be here someone else will walk up yeah. the street it's so interesting i also just wanted to give a little <laughs> shout out for gary Thanks for being so chill about yeah, the day. Yeah, you know, Richard's <laughs> he asked Richard to come and help him with something and they're going to have a drink and, you know, Gary's probably really needing the help and then Richard forgets. Like that second. You've just made the call, you know, and now you're like, oh yeah, of course we can go for a drink. No, Richard, what are you doing? Gary needed some compassion in that moment. Yeah, I think Richard is an overpromise and underdeliver type of person because he wants. To, he's a yes man. He wants to. Say yeah, and yes. we see that with the work he's doing, right? Like he's working on this folder, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll be done in five minutes," even though he probably won't be done in five minutes. And then she comes down, and she's like, "Where's the file?" Yeah, yeah he wants. He wants everybody to be happy, and he wants to make everybody happy. Yeah, I mean. It could be very It's also about boundaries, right? It's about protecting yourself and the things you value. Because it's easy to get lost in what other people want, I guess. It's lost, you know, you're trying to yeah. please someone else. You want to do a good job. Like, I can very much relate to that. Always saying yes to people. Always taking on more. But, you know, I had such a horrible experience for basically 2018, 2019, where I just took on too much because I could not set boundaries and I put way too much pressure on myself yeah. and I like burnt out spectacularly. And since then I've really realized the value of being like, yeah, I want to help you, but I can't do it. Like, like these are my limits and this is, I can help yeah. you in a month. I can't help you now. So you kind of have to learn to navigate that space because if you take on too much like Richard is, you end up letting people down. But if you take on too much and then just work yourself into the ground, you let yourself down. You cannot serve from an empty vessel, yeah. right? Like you have to give yourself something too. You have to have that time for yourself. You have to be able to like replenish in order to give back. I think that this is where Richard is falling down a bit is that he's very much in service mm. to others. Yeah, he gives a lot to other people. There's very little of what do you actually like to do, Richard? Because there's that line about him collecting trolls and he goes, I don't actually collect trolls. He just found one. But he does Yeah, now. because people just bring it, <laughs> keep bringing it to him, which I relate to. Like I was you know, a 12 year old who liked a dolphin once. And then for the rest of my life, I got dolphins every year, all the time on everything. I feel like that's what happened to Richard. He's like, oh, a troll. And they're like, he's the troll guy. <laughs> I kind of love that he threw them in his briefcase and took them home with him though. That made yeah. me laugh. It's just... I think he just needed something to go on his desk so he didn't look like every other person at the office. We we've talked about identity crises, right? And we've talked about how like, 
people go through them. I don't understand this, but <laughs> my brother-in-law is a real yes man. And like one of the best things about him is that he tries so hard. And I've always thought that that was an amazing quality. Like he's so like, what can I do? How can I help? Like, of course, I'll try and do this and let me see if I can. And, you know, I've had to kind of say like, it's okay if you set a boundary. But he was saying to me that he had a similar thing, like being nice isn't a personality yeah. trait. And I thought, oh, like, but that's one of the things I really value about him. Like, I know that's not the only thing he's about, but that is one of the first things I think about when I think about my brother-in-law is that he's very kind and he's a very generous person. Um, and he lets me argue with him, which is great <laughs> because I love to argue and he really tries not to get mad. So I have a great brother-in-law, but that's beside the point. Like, but yeah, I think that's a bit of Richard's problem too, is that he's very kind, but that's not a personality mm. trait. That is interesting. And it's interesting that you said, you know, maybe because he moved to a big city where he didn't know anyone, he sort of just clung to whatever came along. And maybe that's why he's also so intent on making it work with Jessica. You know, she's probably like, she fills his mm. weekends. She's the one who keeps him going. And yeah, yeah, like as someone who moved to a big city where I didn't know anyone, when I moved to London, the only people I knew were at work. And we had a, like, I loved my work friends. We had an amazing time. We went out all the time during work hours. But on the weekends, I'd just be like, mm. cool, I guess. <laughs> And there is definitely that in the book, he's describing how he becomes the sort of person who's proud not to have been to any of the like mm. touristy things. Oh, man, that's me in Sydney. Yeah. It took me having kids to be like, actually, I will go to all the museums and like, yeah, I am going to like this is the first year just a couple weeks ago. This is the first year that I've ever been to the Blue Mountains. Oh, which are, like, wow. An hour and a half away. I know. And they're beautiful. Right. And like, it's super easy to get there. So I, I really feel and understand that like you move to a new place and you want to be the jaded locals. You act like you don't care about all the cool stuff that's on offer. But the whole point of living somewhere like this is that you can do all the things that are on offer. So that's why I love getting friends to visit me because then I get to do all the things that you wouldn't normally do yes well yeah you always go and visit friends with houses because they want to do that cool yeah. stuff too don't just travel go somewhere where you have a friend already install yourself in their house for a little while and then you can see everything and it's really fun and it feels like home it does because you have you know where you're going at the end of the day and you know you'll have somebody to talk to which is the other thing yeah it's nice um can we talk a little bit about doors uh, London Below Society because I thought that was really interesting yeah. not having remembered anything about it absolutely one of the first things that Richard is asked by door is um, whose barony is this whose fiefdom and then old, um, old Bailey asks mm. that as well like I don't recognize you what barony do you give fealty to and I thought that was so interesting because this is a different society and it works on a very old way coded in an older style and I'm really curious to see what it unfolds yeah it's to kind be. of like you know who do you belong to whose protection are you under mm -hmm. and also old Bailey not recognizing him was really interesting how small is London below that he knows everybody yeah. or has he just been along around for so long Ooh, I didn't consider that I really I do not remember anything about this book it's a shocker <laughs> that's lovely um what I found interesting in terms of society is just this like I, I like to think about how in a society you have shared customs and shared language that kind of bonds you to each other yeah so I thought it was interesting on page eight when you've got Krupp and Vandermar like strolling through the sewer and he's like you know think of him he told Mr. Vandermar as a canary and like how a metaphor is a shared language meaning making thing but it seems like they're stuck in the 1800s hey yeah yeah it's very old-fashioned and I, I the description that Richard gives of them coming to the door and being like they, their suits were strange it looked yeah. like someone had made a suit who had only heard a description of a modern suit yeah and you know in the 90s it was all those like baggy like too big yeah. suit jackets yeah, too so big I'm imagining, on the shoulders. like in these tailor-made hand-stitched like boy band suits yeah <laughs> like, I hope they're powder blue <laughs> oh my gosh oh man 
And the way that they talk, they talk like they're in a Victorian nursery tale, right? Like, yeah. we're looking for our sister, a wayward child, willful and headstrong, who is close to broken our poor dear widowed mother's heart. Like, no. You're laying it on way too thick. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the 1800s. <laughs> that, that really cracked me up, that they were just so bad at being modern. They are very bad at being modern. It's just how other they are. You know, they're like, they're trying to fit, but they're just so alien. They're very other. And I wonder if maybe because Richard keyed into the invisible people, he's keyed into the marginalized people, if he's seeing how other they are because he sees them more clearly, whereas they might pass by unnoticed or eccentric. Yeah. Um, Another moment that society came through for me was on page 40 when Dor is trying to get to the pigeons to send a message. And the line is, Dor stood on Richard's bed to reach it, opened the window and sprinkled the breadcrumbs around. But I don't understand, said Richard. Of course you don't, she agreed. And I just thought that, you know, when you go to a new country or a new place and you're engaging in customs or you're walking around and you're like, I don't understand what is going on here. And there's Mm. like, yeah, it's just such a moment where you realize you're of society, but not of that society. Yeah. So he's remarkably compliant. Like, he's like, I don't understand. And she's like, of course you don't. And he's like, okay. And he just goes with it. Like when she makes him apologize to the rat and he's like... I'm sorry, said Richard to the rat, with dignity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if someone said to me, apologize to the rat, I don't know if I would just be like, oh, okay, of course, you know. I probably would. I apologize to Walls for bumping into them. <laughs> Cute. Um, just on your point about Dawes Society, like London Below being quite old-fashioned, hmm. when she sends him off to go find the marquee and she says, you know, she gives him the instructions... And there's like, turn around thrice, Widdishins. And he's like, Widdishins is anti-clockwise, Richard. Because of course he doesn't know. Like, who would say Widdishins? Well, it was a a word that I looked up because it was in the Scorpio races. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I was quite pleased that I knew what it meant. And that's what ties them together. It's also interesting the currency in which London Below operates the society. Because... The Marquis agrees to help Dor because she said she'll owe him a really big favour. And then he mm. goes to the old Bailey and he doesn't want to help him. But he's like, well, I, I did you a favour once and now I'm calling it in. So it almost trades on... The currency is favours and opportunities, not actual coinage. Which is quite old-fashioned, I think, as well. Yeah, it's a real barter system. Or it's... You know what? It's a simulacra. It's not real because we've always had mm. money. Like, as a society, money has always been there. It's always been something that we agree is used in exchange for goods and services like that's the point of money it is a facilitation device right Mm -hmm. so the fact that they're using favors means that maybe they've made a conscious decision as a society not to use currency but rather to create their own value system their own currency but yeah there's an honor system isn't there like Mm -hmm. there's a code and they're all following this code so in order to like be part of london below you have to agree that favors are a thing that you can owe and accrue and call in because yeah the old bailey doesn't like the marquee particularly but he's still gonna do it because he owes him this favor right yeah he says go away nobody wants you here (laughs) he tells him to leave i really am looking forward to seeing how it develops i really want to know more about the world (laughs) which is really exciting for next week actually because we're reading the theme um of reality which i think will be intense it will (laughs) be it will be so there any other like just because bits that you wanted to point out yeah, we've actually already talked about one of them, which is the Richard did not really collect trolls, which I just <laughs> loved. And also you've already mentioned the other one I had as well, which was the enthusiasm that to Richard's mind was beginning to border on the sinister. I just love that so much. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the other thing that I did want to talk about, actually, briefly, is there are two instances in this section that we read where Richard says that he hated himself. So there's one bit where he, he talks about he doesn't like when people say things that are obvious and then he says something obvious and he's like, and he hated himself, which I relate to. I'm also one of those people. Um, and then he's when he's climbing up to see Old Bailey and he's like, he talks about how he's always been afraid of heights, but it's not really being afraid of heights. He's afraid of jumping. And he's like, oh, I, so he calls it vertigo and he hates it and he hates himself. And I was like, that's two instances of self-loathing in this chapter. Yeah. The saying the obvious thing, I think it was very in vogue for a while to be like, oh, I hate people who state the obvious. But also that's an invitation for a conversation, right? Like Mm. small talk is how we begin to connect with other people. That's part of, that's a fundamental part of being as just in a society is being able to make small talk. Like one of the things they're teaching my son at school is how to go to shops and buy things cute yeah yeah so they like go and buy like a packet of chips and he has to like i provide money and then they put it in like the little envelope and he has to go and count out change but like that interaction is really essential because it's teaching him how to people Mm -hmm. right and like they have scripts for it for kids who aren't so good at that and that's amazing because this is the thing you have to live in a society if you're part of one you have to live in it and yes we can adapt to other people but also we have to find that common ground between what we're able to do and what other people expect of us and if we can at least get part of the way and then say look i'm not really good at small talk i'm so sorry most people will respond and say oh that's totally fine Mm. right so richard might hate himself for this but does he hate himself because he's saying it and it's patently obvious or does he hate himself because he wants to connect and he hasn't figured out the way to yet yeah i think that's probably more the reading i took of it it's like he doesn't know what to say he wants to figure out what's going on he needs to connect Mm. with her and then he's like oh i've done it in this really banal way that i don't really like which isn't fair because like how else do you start a conversation with someone that was bleeding in your bed like honestly (laughs) where do you start with that be like yo are you gonna replace my sheets or (laughs) Um, I just thought that that was a lack of compassion. Like if we're reading it through the theme of compassion, like he has no compassion for himself in that moment. He's so harsh on himself. Everybody's their own worst critic, right? Oh yeah. He lets Jessica get away with some really, really rude things. Other people can be unkind. Like Gary calling his fiance the creature from the Black Lagoon. He said, oh, she's from Ilford actually. Like he just lets it go. But for himself, that self-loathing is really evident. You gotta be compassionate to yourself, man. Yeah. The intrusive thought one really got me, though. I It's something I've struggled with. It can be really frustrating to have intrusive thoughts. And I also understand that impulse of, like, when you get too close to the edge and being like, what would happen if I did fall? You do think it. There's some psychology around that where people with the fear of heights don't actually have a fear of heights. It is the fear of actually just jumping, just mm. going for it. That's yeah. a common thing. They're afraid that they can't stop themselves from making a fatal mistake. Yeah. Which says a lot about it, right? Like, I've been trying to remind myself fear is just a feeling. Mm. Like, it's not real. Like, I am experiencing it, but it's not real. And sometimes that can remove me enough to get my head around what's happening. And then you have to learn that as well. Like, it mm. takes a while. Like, I am deathly afraid of bees. Um, For no particular reason. I don't know if I'm allergic. I've never been stung by a bee. I just mm. find them terrifying. And I have since I was very little. But it's gotten to the point where I, I know it's irrational. But irrational fears are irrational. You know, like, you yeah. can't do anything about that. But I can just be like, okay, it's okay. There's a bee. There's a bee near you. It doesn't actually want you. Just stay here. And like, I can talk myself out of the fear. But the initial impulse is still to run screaming for the hills. Yeah, that's me and big dogs. I'm very scared of big dogs. Um, Did you have a a character to spotlight this, this time around? 
Yeah, so I wanted to spotlight Dor because she's been through something deeply traumatic mm. and she's being chased by these sinister men who seem to never tire. And just like, what a terrifying ordeal that must be for her to be scared and just yeah. have nowhere to go. And then to find Richard, you know, like just to find that little moment of respite is just, you know, it's just such a nice thing. And I just, yeah, for anyone going through anything really tough, I think, I hope everyone finds their moment of just a good person that they can rest with. A place of rest, yeah. A person of rest. That's really important. Everybody should have somebody like that in their life. I agree. How about you? Um, I think I want to spotlight Richard. I was really torn between Richard and Jessica because I want to know more about Jessica and I'm mm. I'm trying to delve into the unlikable characters, at least the human ones, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Richard, I felt very strongly that he's a person who doesn't really know himself but wants to do the right thing, so I respect that. And also, I, I kind of wanted to... Something that really stuck with me was... He's afraid of things, but when they actually happen, he's able to cope with them. So he's really Mm. good in a crisis. There's this great line, when it came to real blood, real pain, he's simply gone Mm. on and did something about it. So he thinks he's way more squeamish and wobbly than he is. Like, that's a really essential thing. Like, I I like being the person who's calm-headed in a crisis, and I generally am. So that's one of the things I pride myself on. So I hope that, you know, if if anyone out there has ever tried or tested that, they suddenly find themselves more capable. Mm. Because I think we really are limitless and we really are capable of way more than we ever thought we we would be, right? Yeah, that's really lovely. Yeah, we all have hidden depths if we just allow ourselves to to do that. There's more fear than things really to be afraid of. Yeah, it's about trusting yourself. Yeah. The stories we tell ourselves as well. If you tell yourself, oh, I'm not good with blood, then maybe you won't trust yourself when the moment arises. That's true, too. I know it seems cheesy to quote Frozen 2, but do the next right thing. That's <laughs> absolutely a very good way to live your life. Yeah, that's great. Well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 3 and 4 through the theme of reality. Ooh, Exciting. What is reality? Um, Existence is subjective. That's the spirit. Let's bring a postmodern <laughs> element to it. I love postmodernism. This is 100% my course stream in uni. So, <laughs> I mean, like my favorite class was probably theories of subjectivity. I'm really excited about next week, though. We're also going to still be reading through the theme of compassion. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see how that develops as well and have that as a constant. It's going to be good. Well, thank you very much for potting with me. No, thank you. It's always a delight. I learn so much from you. I learn so much from you. I think this is the most fun that I've had in a long time. Yeah, it's not like kid related because I have a lot of fun <laughs> with my kids. Yeah, fair enough. Building marble towers and I don't know what else. <laughs> Yeah, my house is um, a craft zone at the moment. There's paper everywhere. I love it. Cute. I'll talk to you in a week and a bit when you are back from your mini holiday and super refreshed. Exciting. Yet again, going away. I know. Lucky girl. Lucky girl. (laughs) Well, I'm going to be enjoying this heat wave, by which I mean I'm not going to enjoy it at all. So have fun for me. Okay. Well, stay cool. (laughs) Well, you're always cool. So stay awesome. Oh. Oh. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. 
Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.